morning again. I missed you earlier. My name's Jordan. I'm the pastor here. We're glad that you've joined us today. If you're new here, I want to welcome you. Uh, you came on a good day because you get to come to a picnic later if you want. So um, the Lord's blessed us with a beautiful day, and we are going to be down at Ferncliff today at 3 o'clock, and we're just going to hang out, enjoy each other. We don't have uh, an agenda other than have fun. And so come at 3, bring um, a lawn chair if you want one, bring a game, football, frisbee to throw around, whatever you want to do, and um, we're just going to hang out, and then we'll eat around 5. You need to bring some food, too, if you can. But um, anyway, so looking forward to that. If you want information about that, what kind of food you should bring or how you should connect, it's really not a big deal. Just, just show up. We'd love to have you. Uh, but you can stop by the welcome desk on your way out or grab somebody with a name tag, and we'll get your questions answered. But we would love for you to join us, whether you've been here for uh, the entire life of our church or whether this is your first week, um, you're, you're welcome to come and, and, and invite your friends, too. It's not just you don't have to, you're not going to have to show a journey ID to get in or anything, right? So you can invite your friends. We would love to, for you to use that as a time to just... For somebody that's maybe uh, not connected to any church, this would be a good chance to just say, hey, come hang out with us at Ferncliff. Uh, I happen to go to church with some pretty cool people, and you should come meet some of them, right? And if you don't think we fit that, then maybe bring some cool people to bring with you or whatever. But, uh, but bring your friends. It'd be good, okay? Um, keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 12. We're going to jump back in here um, in our series on the book of Luke. Man, we have, we have spent a good bit of 2018 in Luke. We started actually back in... 2017, and uh, with the Advent, walking through Luke one and two, um, in the story, the Christmas story, and then we we spent uh, the winter and the first part of the spring walking through the first half of the book, and then we paused for the summer, and now we're back in it, and we're really going to be fast paced now from from now to the end of the year, or really right up until this year's Advent, walking through the last half of Luke, and so uh, we're going to be hitting some incredible um, action packed passages from this. And so if you remember, there's a lot that's been going on as Jesus has been, we've called this uh, the book, The Outsider's Gospel, where Luke is really writing um, with the skeptic in mind. Luke himself was a skeptic. He wasn't um, a, a Jew that followed Jesus whenever he was alive. He was converted later, and um, he was a doctor, but he set out to write his own account to go and interview all kinds of e-witnesses. Uh, e that's key and I together, if you didn't know. Uh, key eyewitnesses about all that Jesus had did, and he put together this incredible account. Uh, this is the Gospel of Luke, is what we're reading. And so, uh, but he, he has in mind to show particularly how the gospel is not just to come and, and high five the religious people who are checking off all the boxes, but really how Jesus has come for those who are outside of the family of God because of their sin, because of their sickness, because of their social rejection, and how the kingdom of God is actually coming for those that are poor and rejected. And, and so Jesus has confronted religious leaders. He's healed sick people. He's kicked out demons. He's done a lot of things, and it's caused the religious people to be quite nervous and actually to have an active plot against Jesus. And he's now on his way to Jerusalem, which we know um, where he'll end his life on a cross. And so um, these last few chapters are full of interac interactions and encounters that he comes upon. But today's is, if we're honest with ourselves, it, we're not it's not unusual for Jesus to talk about money, but if we kind of admit and just kind of pause, of, you know, as we're reading through and all that's been going on in the gospel so far, this is a bit of a shift in gears. This, the, the question that this guy raises um, is, is a bit odd in context, if we're being honest. And so Jesus is in the midst of this ministry. He's confronted uh, religious people in the previous chapter and talked a lot about the warnings of all of that. And then all of a sudden it just says in the, the verse that we picked up in verse 13, in chapter 12, it says, someone in the crowd says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Again, um, on one hand, super common issue, right? Like we all know families that, 
uh, have been divided and torn apart over money, especially after the death of a patriarch or matriarch, and, and, and who's going to get the inheritance, and how much do I get, and all of those things. I, I know two families in that situation right now, really in my extended circle, either like friends of the family or family of some of the friends that I know, where that's just a real issue. We know that that divides families often, and so it's a common issue. Uh, we've all heard of this thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's a bit curious that this guy brings this to Jesus, especially right now, right? But like we're talking about, like we know that Jesus is the judge overall, but if you're in context here, we're talking about a homeless Galilean peasant here, right? We're talking about the guy who was born in a manger surrounded by animals. So while Jesus is indeed the creator and the judge over all things, um, it's really clear if you look at his life that money isn't a priority in his ministry. So for this guy to bring this here is a bit curious. I mean, it'd be one thing if Jesus was like, you know, making, you know, stacks of cash in his ministry, like if he was rolling up on the, you know, in the, the newest model camel, you know, with rims and tinted windows and that sort of thing, and maybe with a, a big mansion that he was going back to. But we know from earlier in the, in the story that that's not how Jesus rolled. Like, in fact, he, con- he confronted would-be followers of him and said, hey, just so you know, you need to count the cost before you come because foxes have dens and birds have nests. He said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus is literally living a homeless life as he goes from town to town doing ministry and and pursuing God's kingdom. And so clearly, money is not something that is a a priority. Um, Jesus is not concerned about material possessions as far as what his kingdom is bringing. And yet this man comes to him nonetheless. And I think we should make note of like why this guy comes to him. I think the abruptness it should be a bit like the, you know, the brakes are, are, are being hit and screeching in the middle of this movement of the kingdom of God. This guy brings this odd question. Um, and I think it's a good reminder of really what the love of money can do to us. That we can get so, like money itself can become so primary in our life that it consumes us and causes us to really have tunnel vision about that being the only thing that matters. And so this guy kind of bringing this up in this weird time uh, to Jesus who uh, you know, has been healing and doing all these things, it should kind of cause us to ask, like, what, what's going on in his heart? Like, why? Um, I just want you to think about it. This guy observing um, Jesus doing ministry, you know, where demons are being kicked out of people, where, you know, the sick are being healed, religious are being confronted, prostitutes and other public sinners and the sick and the lepers are being welcomed in and embraced and forgiven and commissioned into new life. And then all of a sudden this guy raises his hand and says, hey, Jesus, will you please tell my brother to give me my money? To go from such eternal, powerful, and meaningful issues with such deep consequences to a question like this should give us some pause. And, and Jesus agrees that it's weird. In fact, that's how he uh, responds to the guy. He says, um, verse 14, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus says, what, what in my ministry, what, what in what you've observed about me makes you think that's what I'm here to do? But then Jesus uses it as an opportunity to address the deeper issue that's at hand. And so while this man's request is is a bit out of place, I think it's indicative of a greater epidemic. And Jesus knows this because while this man is the only one that's kind of voiced his true concerns in the moment, Jesus knows that he's not the only one with shallow hopes about what the kingdom of God is meant to bring. You see, for Jesus, like most of the people that are following Jesus in this time um, think that he's headed to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome and therefore establish Israel 
once again as an earthly kingdom. And that will, no doubt, lead to a better lifestyle for all of them, right? No more oppressive taxes, no more um, rule and reign from an outside source, but they will be able to flourish again. And so theirs is a little more subtle and a a little more hidden, but everybody kind of has the same, like, uh, expectation of Jesus is going to lead me to have a, a better life. This guy's just been forced to the forefront a bit with a, with a situation where he's about to um, inherit um, whatever fortune his dad has left him. And so this guy sort of sticks his foot in his mouth, but he's really just more vocal about what the rest of us are thinking. And so as we kind of move into this text, I want us to relate to this guy more than judge this guy. I want us to think about how often do our prayers and our conversations with God sound really similar? So maybe it's not about an inheritance exactly, right? But it boils down to the same posture for us. Like, how often is it just this, this one thing that's dominating us and we let ourselves believe that we are entitled to it? Whatever it may be, this promotion, this house, this relationship, this thing, this healing, whatever it may be, we, we allow ourselves to be, begin to believe that we are entitled to this Thing, and we get tunnel vision about that thing, and we really begin to pray in such a way that says, God, if you'll just take care, if you'll just give me this, then I'll be content. Lord, if you'll just fix this problem, or if you'll just give me this blessing, then, then I'll be content, Lord, and, and I'll give you the rest of my life, or however you want to fill in the blank there. And on the flip side of that, what happens when the Lord doesn't bend to our will and give us what we want, then we start to think, Lord, if you, if you don't do this, then you must not care about me, right? You must not have my best interest. You must not love me. I think if we're honest, many of our interactions with Jesus aren't that different than this man right here. That in the midst of a, a great work of what Jesus is trying to do in our life, we're worried about a little thing that Jesus says, hey, hey that's, that's not the purpose of of my kingdom. That's not the greater thing that I'm doing in your life. You, you need to get your eyes up. And so I think as we kind of relate and we move in here, we'll see that Jesus knows. The reason that he doesn't just dismiss the man, he actually turns and addresses because he knows that money is one of the greatest obstacles to understanding and receiving the kingdom of God. Jesus has taught about it before, right? Um, and he knows that we need help getting this teaching into our thick heads. So he uses an opportunity to teach those around him about the dangers of money and the kindness of God, their father. And and that's what I want to spend the most of our time on today. Like none of us are caught off guard necessarily about the Bible speaking against, um, you know, loving money and, you know, finding our hope in money. Like we're kind of used to that. But I think we, many of us have been over conditioned by this thou shall not culture and we forget the heart of God in this type of teaching. And so I want to I want to see what Jesus is really inviting us to, not just what he's forbidding, but what he's inviting us to. But, but Jesus starts by, with a familiar story and a sobering warning here, and he, and he tells them this, this story to, to help drive the point home. And so he tells them this parable in verse 16. Before that, he says, take care, like, be on guard. He addresses this man's posture, and he says, be on guarding us all covetousness. I went back up to 15. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told him a parable. And he basically says this, the, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. This guy like has a really good year, and he thinks to myself, like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't have enough to store all this stuff, so what do I do with it? And we all know the story. I'll tear down my barns, verse 18. I'll build bigger ones and larger ones. And I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. But then Jesus 
snaps us back into reality when he, he reminds us of our mortality. And he says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So the man in the story embodies the life that this guy, asking the question, this is what he's longing for, right? Like this is not just some like, you know, minor dispute. Like to receive the inheritance is, it, like that's a big deal. If any of you have ever been in a place where you're poised to receive a, a large sum of money, you know the kind of the, the anxiousness that happens there, right? You start spending it in your head. You start thinking about what I'm going to do with it, what I can do with it, what it could look like, what my life could look like now if I just had these things. And so you get, you get anxious and you start thinking about it. And so for this man, it's, it's a very... It's a big deal. He is, he's dreaming about what life can finally be like once he gets his portion of the inheritance. And this man that Jesus tells the story about really embodies that kind of a life where, man, now I don't have to worry about the day-to-day. I, maybe I don't even have to go to work. Like, things are set up for me, and I can finally enjoy. And so this is a really a, a tipping point in this guy's mind that if he gets these things, life is going to shift into a different level of meaning and enjoyment and pleasure. And yet Jesus uses this harsh story to remind us, to warn us, really, about the brevity of life and about how those types of things will not lead. Like the, the lie that you're believing, the hope that you're expecting, the, ang- the anxiousness there, he said it's, it's empty. It's, it's not going to, and, and he reminds us of this by simply just reminding of, a, of the mortality. He says, the guy has a really good year. He builds all these bigger barns, and it's all good. He's ready to set up and enjoy the rest of his life, and then boom, his life ends. And now what, what good is the storehouses? What good is the abundance in which that he um, had placed all of his hope? See, Jesus is just telling this story as a way of reminding us of, man, our culture reminds us of this stuff all the time. Because it's a reality that we can't get away from, right? It, Christian or non-Christian, like people talk about um, when, when you fast forward to the deathbed moment, people always say like nobody, nobody regrets. When, when they're on their deathbed, nobody's regretting wishing that they had worked more, wishing that they had earned more, right? The types of regrets that we have in those moments are about relationships and about things that last. And, and, and we realize that our, our struggle to, to pursue and to gain and earn and do all these things is in vain, and it, and it just doesn't matter because you can't, as they say, take it with you, right? The country song that uh, so catchily remind us of this truth that money can't buy us happiness, but it can buy me a boat, right? It can buy me a truck to pull it, and so on and so forth. And that's just a catchy reminder of what we all know to be true. Like, we, we see the emptiness that is in that pursuit, but we don't know where else to go, and we don't know what else to do, so we just decide, like, I might as well enjoy what I can. I might as well get what I can while I'm here. And, and, and the reality is, like, it's not that those things are completely empty. Like, we do get enjoyment out of the new iPhone, Right? We do get enjoyment out of the boat or the truck and the, and the house and fill in the blank. Like those things aren't without their rewards. We, 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 we do experience, a, you know, um, um, neurological hit of, of pleasure. Like we do get something out of them, but we realize it's short-lived. And the reason is the 
we're not made for a new iPhone. We're not made for the new house. Like, it doesn't last because that's not what our souls are made for. That's not what we're longing for. So, so the question is that many of us ask, especially at this point, whenever you hear, like, uh, you know, the preacher's going to preach on, on money, or you just come across a passage like this, like, why can't God just be happy with what I put in the offering plate uh, each week and leave me alone about my money, right? Like, why do we have passages like this and sermons like this? And, and we say every week, like, God doesn't need our money, but, he, man, he sure seems to talk about it a lot, right? So what's going on in these scriptures? Why does God care? about? Why does he have to tell us these, these stories about um, how our life is really going to be empty and, and uh, you know, it's just going to be a bigger pile of, of stuff at the end if we don't have treasure in heaven? Why, why does God get so personal? Why can't he just be content and let me enjoy my life the way that I want to? And that's where I want to spend most of our time today is talking about how like Jesus is not just trying to be a buzzkill here. Like Jesus is not trying to steal from us. Jesus says there is one who, who wants to steal from us. Like, that's our enemy. But he says, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Like, the posture of God is never to take from us and rob us of anything. Like, he's trying to lead us into life. He's trying to lead us into eternal life. Like, God's heart is for us and for our good. Really, what he says here in that initial warning to the people, he says, life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And listen, we're used to hearing something like that. And I think for many of us, like, we hear it in the way that our, our, our parents tell us something over and over again as a kid. And like, yeah, yeah, I know that's true, but I still really want to do this, right? Like, we kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. Like, but this is not just an opinion. This is not just an old saying. Like, this is a, a fact about life. Like, this is our good father. Not only is he the one who made us, so he knows how life is supposed to work, but he's also been there. Like he's also entered into our mess. He's felt the draw of material gain and of power and pleasure and those things. And he knows exactly what we're longing for and experiencing. And he's saying, listen, you won't find what you're looking for there. That well is empty. You might get that stuff, but it doesn't satisfy the way that you think it's going to. He's kindly confronting our misplaced hope here in this moment. And he sums it up this way in, in verse... 34, actually in verse 33, um, he says, sell your possessions, give it to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, uh, we, we know that, seek the kingdom first, where your treasure is, like we, it's familiar to us because it's such a kind of a coffee cup verse in our culture. And it, but I think it just gets chalked up as some noble idea that, you know, these, um, the heroes of our faith maybe live by, or the real varsity people, they, they you know, I know that so-and-so is going to live that way, but it just doesn't resonate with me. But I think, like, if we stop and, and think about it, it's actually a really practical teaching for our everyday life. It's not just this lofty idea that we aspire to. Like, Jesus is being really, really practical. And what he's saying is, don't put your hope, don't put your treasure in stuff, because your life might, you like, you might get called away and, it, and it's no good. Don't put your treasure in stuff because the stock market might crash. This might happen. You might lose your job. Somebody might take it. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. So what he's saying is, like, that doesn't end well for anybody. So the invitation is to put your treasure in heaven where it can't be taken from you. I'm reminded of a, of a quote of a man that observed the great Jonathan Edwards. 
Many of you may have heard of him. He was a, perhaps one of America's greatest theologians. And um, at one point, he was actually fired from his church. And um, an observer of his life wrote about that week whenever he was kind of, the, the council had come together to figure out what they were going to do and, and whether he was going to continue or not. And they said, no, like this guy has to go and his church is going to be dissolved. And he watched him that week. He watched him during that, that process. And his, not only his, his ministry being taken away, but that's his livelihood at that point. And, and what he says about him is, his, he says, man, it was such a faithful witness. Wasn't even rattled by that shock, that, that, that incredible announcement over his life, that incredible shift. And what he said is, he appeared as a man who had his treasure elsewhere that was so far out of the enemy's reach that even the circumstances that were so dark and so painful in his life couldn't steal his joy, couldn't steal his happiness. And that's the idea. Jesus is saying, I, I know this stuff is enjoyable. I know it's tempting to play, but you can't can't put your hopes there because it will be taken from you one day. So what I'm inviting you to do is to put your treasure a little higher where no enemy can destroy, where no moth is going to get in, no rust is not going to, it's not going to lose its luster. The thing about the new iPhone is they're already working on a new iPhone. I don't know if you realize that, right? And so pretty soon you're going to be bored. And like, that's just how capitalism works, right? Like they just prey on our, like, uh, we, we just got to have the new, next thing. And so they, they just, they're really good at making us feel like what we have is just junk, right? And like, man, I got to have that next thing. What, what he's saying is put your treasure in something that'll never lose its luster. It'll never lose its fulfillment. Put it up higher where no enemy can get to it. And you have that posture that no matter what comes in your life, how bad circumstances get, your joy cannot be taken from you. And that's when he says, from where your treasure, but there's more to it. Like, it's not just this, hey, you, you white-knuckle it, and you give, you, you give me your treasure, and then one day you'll, you'll receive your reward. Like, there, there's, a, there's a portion, like, that's certainly true. Like, we, we submit, and we, we walk by faith at this time, and one day we will be rewarded in full, but there's something for us in the moment. Like, Jesus is not just saying, hey, put, make sure you make your payments on your eternal life insurance policy so that you can come to the streets of gold someday. Like, that, like, that's, that's just a piece of it, and we've kind of broken that out as the entire gospel. What he's saying, like, he's our good shepherd. He's leading us to life even today. And so when he says, like, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, like, we, we think about that as a negative thing. I know I need to give more. I know I need to do more. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 like, there's an offer of life there. Like, I'm inviting you to put your treasure in something that will fulfill you. Like, the way that the water of li- the, the well of living water satisfies us in, in such a way that Jesus says we'll never thirst again. That's what he's inviting us to. It's not just this crank down the screws and, and give as much as we can in one day. Like, no, he's saying, put your treasure in heaven. Put your treasure and be rich toward God. And then you'll, you'll experience a level of fulfillment and abundant life that nothing in this world can give you. Wherever the flow of our money is heading, that's where our heart's going to be also. Now, we need, like, like I said, we need to take that for what it means, right? It's not just this lofty idea. Like Jesus is saying, like, wherever your treasure is, your heart, like, you'll be inclined. Like, your, your affections will follow. I couldn't think of a, of a better illustration, so I'm just going to steal one from a pastor out in um, Raleigh-Durham named J.D. Greer. And, and if you know about that geographical area, you know that um, it's right there in North Carolina, and it's the center of a whole lot of... Um, rivalry in terms of university sports, right? Like there's, and, and particularly uh, the most well-known one, it was between Duke and North Carolina. 
And so he said that he had a particularly wise friend in his congregation that was a uh, North Carolina fan, right? He knew what he was doing. Um, nobody else got that, sorry. Um, but he was a huge Carolina fan, and therefore, by consequence, hated Duke, right? Because that's what you do. Um, and that was his whole, it was a lifelong Tar Heel, baby blue Carolina fan, and, until his daughter grew up and decided she wanted to go to Duke. And after much protest and arguing, but like she, he's, he loves his little girl, and so he said, okay, whatever you want. And so um, he, he had to begin uh, begrudgingly to write these checks to this university that he had so long hated. And, and what he said is that over time, after uh, sending that university thousands upon thousands of, of dollars, can I get an amen, right? Like that's just a, it terrifies me right now as I have three. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but after sending thousands and thousands of dollars to the the university that he once hated, he started to realize, hey, you know what, turns out, Duke's not so bad. You know what, I'm actually, he found himself wearing Duke shirts, and he found himself going to Duke games, and, and his, his affection shifted because his treasure had been placed there consistently, and so he found it harder and harder to hate what he was giving, um, you know, 30 grand a year to. And so, that's just a, a, you know, a silly example that helps us see that what Jesus is saying is it's not this you know, noble idea that, you know, once you, you know, start loving God in such a, a way that he's your treasure, then you'll want to give him an offering. Like, there's a real practicality to this. Jesus says, no, no, start, start putting your money where your mouth is. Like, start giving and trusting in me and put your treasure there, and your affections will actually follow that. It shows us that he's teaching, like, that we get to choose where we put our treasure and our hearts will follow. And I want you to stop and think about this. Like, if this is true, and the Bible certainly makes it clear over and over again, repeatedly says that this is the, the, the posture, that our heart will follow our treasure, then it makes some sense out of some of the commands that God gives, right? Particularly that we would give. I mean, if God is really committed to giving us life, and, and, and listen, I want, you to, I want you to listen. If you've been checked out all day because we're talking about money, we, we please just check back in for a second. Like, this is the heart of God, and this is why week after week, we take a little bit of time to talk about the offering because we want you to know that we're not out for your money, God's not out for your money, and there's, some, there's something uh, mysterious and subtle about God inviting us and really commanding his people to give. And, and here's the deal. Like, if God's really committed to giving us life, and he's the greatest good that we can ever have, right? Like, that's, like we're made for him. We're made to enjoy him. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, determines after really the, one of the world's most incredible experiments um, in hedonism to figure out what life is about. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. This guy says, I'm going to figure out what brings me joy in life. I'm going to figure out what satisfies me. I have all the money in the world. I have all the resources in the world. I'm not going to say no to myself. Uh, my kids were talking about a yes day. I don't know where. It's YouTube, really. YouTube's an evil thing. Um, my kids watch it, and then they come up with this stuff. And they're talking about, hey, can we have a yes day? And I'm like, oh, what is that? And they're like, it's a day where we get to ask you whatever we want. you got to say yes. I'm like, that's a trap. No way. <laughs> Um, maybe with some parameters we'll do it. But this is why kids are talking about it yesterday. So this, this Solomon basically says, I'm going to have a yes life. I want to do whatever I want. I have all the resources that anybody could ever want. I'm going to have a yes life. And so all the women that he could have, all the, all the um, entertainment that he could have, all the building, all the money, all, anything that he wanted, he got. And at the end of the book, what he comes to is he says, hey, listen, it's all vanity. It's all hevel. It's all just chasing like after smoke. You think you see it. You think you can grab it and just slips through your hands. He says, here's the sum of it all. Fear God and obey his commands. 
Like, that's the only thing that brings us satisfaction. That's the only thing that settles in on our soul. So, if that's true, God is our greatest good, the only thing that can satisfy us. That nothing else can satisfy our soul's longing. That's true, and it's true that wherever our money is flowing, there our hearts will follow. Then God's command for us to give to him is the most loving thing that he can do, right? Just think about that for a moment. If it's true that nothing else in this world can satisfy our souls and actually bring us a a level of joy that can't be robbed from us, and if it's true at the same time that wherever we give our money, wherever we put our treasure, our hearts will follow, then it's really loving of our God to, to command us to give to him, right? Like we say every week during offering time, God doesn't need our money, but he he commands us to give for our own good. And that doesn't make a lot of sense if you're new to this or if you haven't studied this, but it starts to connect some of the dots when we look at a teaching like this. If it's like for our own good, our greatest good is the worship, adoration, and relationship with God. If he's the only thing that that we can have in this life that we experience that satisfies us, like he said, is the fount of living water, then it would actually be unloving if he doesn't tell us and command us and put in structures in our, our daily life as a Christian to give to him. He knows that our hearts are inclined to follow our treasure, so he demands that we give him our treasure. It's not that God's an egomaniac. It's not that he needs our money or he just wants us to stroke his, his fragile ego. Like He is a good father looking out for his kids. That's the posture of Jesus when he talks about money, when he comes toward us. But again, none of that is surprising, right? Like, we, we kind of get that. But it's one thing for us to hear this talk. It's an entirely different thing to let it sink down into the details of life. So what do we do with this? How do we actually live this out? And I think if you ask that question honestly, then you've got you to go back to the parable and think, well, what, what should the man have done? What should the man have done whenever he had a good, such a good year that um, his current you know, silos and, and, and barns couldn't hold all the grain that he was harvesting? What, what should he have done in that moment? What would have been the, the, the better posture? And really, it's uh, Jesus just fleshing out what he taught in Luke 9 earlier whenever he, he talked about like when, when we seek to save our life, when we want to find our life, what do we got to do? We got to give it away. And those that are just seeking to save it and, and trying to, by any means to get what they can, he says, they're going to they're gonna find that they've lost it and they never gained what they're, they're hoping for anyway. But he says, if you really want to find your life, you've got to give it away. Listen, that sounds like Jesus speak, but our culture's stumbling all over that. There's, there's, there's research you know, published by Forbes and New York Times, like, like people talk about all the time, like it, it's better to give than to receive. Like, that sounds like a pithy little saying, but they've actually studied it. Like somebody walks up to somebody and just gives, gives them a $5 bill like randomly. Who gets the bigger reward out of that? The person who received that or the person who gave that? Neuro- neurologically, they've measured like who gets the bigger hit of dopamine. It's the person who gave. And we know that to be true. Like we, it feels good to, to give our lives away. Right? So again, Jesus is not trying to steal from us here by saying, well, whatever you get, you got to give it away. He's inviting us to experience something greater. So what should the man have done? I think, man, for all that the internet is and Pinterest and Instagram and its, you know, pithy little sayings, I saw this one and I thought it was actually helpful and I robbed it. And um, I just think it's good. And it says this. I think this is what the man should have done. When you have more than you need, build a longer table. 
not a higher fence. Isn't that a helpful way to look at it? This guy has a harvest. It's more than what his barns can hold. What am I going to do? I've got to tear all this down and build bigger stuff so I can... No, no, no. How about you? How about you invite some others to your table? How about you, you lengthen that table, lengthen your reach of generosity instead of just building up a, a, a taller fence that isolates you and insulates you for the sake of you? Those same studies about happiness and, and giving things away, like they talk about how like the biggest reason that that helps that like somebody that's depressed or like because it gets your mind off of you. Like when you're just so focused on you, you realize like you're made for something different and that, man, that, that just leads to a dead end. And so um, what should the man have done? I think, I think if we think about it that way, like that's the fleshing out of what Jesus has been talking about. The kingdom of God is not all about getting something for me. It's about giving our lives away. And in that, we actually find something more satisfying and more rich than what we've ever known before. So what does that look like? What, what am I telling you to do? Uh, and I think as we kind of move into response here, like much of what, what that's going to mean is going to be between you and the Lord as you just submit yourself to him and ask him to show you where your life is kind of out of alignment with what he's called you to do. And it talks about, you know, the passage there, uh, it talks about selling your possessions and giving them to the poor. And Jesus often says this, and I think he says it to get our attention, right, to hold up in stark contrast our, our posture and our tendency to be completely selfish. He says, no, why don't you sell it all and give it to the poor? And listen, for some of us, that may be exactly what we need to do to kind of reset our lifestyle. But I think as you read the, the entire counsel of God's word and you look at it in this manner, like the issue isn't about making money. Like the sin is not that we've made a lot of money or that we've been successful. The issue is that we are inclined to give way too little of it away. When we talk about the evils of this world and those that are suffering and those that don't have, like the way that God has set this thing up to work is that we care for one another. And and, and it's not just about begrudgingly giving away some so that that somebody who doesn't have any will give some, but it's actually good for us as we carry one another's burdens and invest in the lives of other people in that way. So you don't need to repent for for being successful. You might need to repent of what you've done with your success, what you've done with what you've made. Pastor uh, Darren used to say, like, it's not a sin to make too much money. Like, you can't make too much money, but you can give too little of it away. So if it's been all about you and rewarding yourself, then you might have some work to do with God. So I'm going to want to put this burden, this, uh, you know, template of what your life should look like and just lay that over you. But I want to give you an example, just one example of, I think, what, what it can look like to be rich toward God, to be successful, and yet to, to have our treasure in heaven. I'll tell you about a friend of mine. Um, I may have mentioned this to some of you before, but a friend of mine who was uh, really the, the dad of a girl that I went to school with, um, and he was a dentist, which that's a sweet gig, right? Every time I go to the dentist, I'm like, man, this, this joker's cash flow is ridiculous because he ain't doing much, Right? The hygienist and all them, they're the cleaning the teeth. He's got like 12 of them cleaning 12 people's teeth at one time. He pops in. They tell him what to do. They're like, hey, you need to look at this tooth and look at that and whatever. And he looks. And he's like, yep, all good. Need anything for me? And he goes on to the next person. I'm like, man, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good flow he's got going there, right? And so anyway, if you're, I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying good work if that's you. But so my friend's a dentist, and, it's, and I was always – kind of intrigued by him because he didn't live like a dentist. 
And once I got to know him, and I didn't find this out from him. I had to find this out from somebody else. But what I began to realize is this guy loved the Lord deeply. And he was an incredible introvert. The, di- the guy didn't even like to talk. Um, but the guy loved the Lord, and that guy was called to missions, to foreign missions. And you think, well, that's weird. And I thought he was a dentist. Yeah, he was. But you know what he did? Instead of raising his lifestyle as high as he could and enjoying all the money that was being brought in, he decided, you know what, I'm going to live at this lifestyle. And what's between here and here? I don't actually need it. I'm good. And I'm going to fund foreign missionaries. Boom. And so he just kept being successful. And he just cranked out cash. And, and, and I don't know how many people know Jesus in Africa because of this guy's lifestyle. Does that make sense? And God calls us as the body of Christ to live in that kind of way. And so for some of us, it may be packing up and going. It may be giving our stuff to the poor. Or it may be... You know what? I'm really, God's blessed me with abundance. God, how do, you want me to redirect, how do you want me to direct that abundance? How can I bring glory to you? How can I be rich toward God with what you've blessed me with, Lord? So that's just one example of, of how you can posture your life in such a way that really honors the Lord even while you're successful. And for many of us, like this resonates deeply and we want to be this kind of people. We want to have this kind of life. And maybe you've been leave sermons like this and you're really inspired, but then you have to snap back to reality because you get home and you realize that the, the credit card bill is still coming in, right? And the mortgage is still due. And we realize that our everyday life makes it really, really hard to break into this kind of freedom and to have this kind of richness toward God because we've got to pay the bills and we've got to do this thing. And our lifestyles have, have so dominated us and got us in a bind that really, when most of us think about worshiping God and we think about how we, where, where we put our treasure, really the conversation is more, for most of us, is about like, okay, wh- how much can I like have left? Like I have to do these things, I have to do these things. Like what, what can I sh- like kind of squeeze out at the end to offer God? Jesus is saying, listen, I know that's real. I get that struggle. I know that, that, that life has its demands. And he knows that, that those kinds of demands lead to anxiety. And so that's why he says, that's why he gives the second part of this passage whenever he talks about not being anxious. Because he knows that even if we want to be this kind of a person that's rich toward God, like our lifestyles have got us in slavery to our debt and to our bills and all those different things. And so he says, what do you do? How, how, do, you, how do you get there then? And, and he wants to just um, walk us through as a good shepherd and give us some quick principles um, of, of why we can trust him and why we could follow him in this way and not be anxious. And this is uh, in verse 22 uh, through the end of the passage that we read here. And here's what he's going to say, first of all. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, which, uh, nor about your body or what you'll put on it. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. He's going to give some examples. Um, the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, and, yet, and they, need, they don't have a storehouse nor a barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the, than the birds? And, and which of you, this is just a real practical question, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? So the first thing that Jesus tells us out of his kindness is just simply, hey, think about it. What's your worrying? What's your anxiety? What's that ever earned you? What's that ever gained you? As you speak to somebody that's really worried about profits and efficiency, he says, listen, Worry and anxiety, really inefficient, really unproductive, doesn't get you. He said, which of you, by doing that, has actually added even a single hour to your lifespan? Nope, 
right? Like, we can't do it. So he says, first of all, just consider the emptiness of it. When, when, you're, when you're tempted to do that, you're just going to choose against it because it's, it's, it's really not even a wise investment of your time. Like, it's, it's dumb. It does, you can't add anything. So that's the first thing is it's unproductive anyway. But then he goes on. He says, uh, you know, if you're not able to do that, why... Uh, if you're not able to even change an hour of your life, why are you anxious about the rest? And then he's going to share some more examples. Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, the guy I was telling you about earlier, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, a little faith? Oh, you of little faith. Second thing he says is God's promised to provide for your needs. Like God has told you that he will. And even that, though, it's like, okay, I know, but, right? I know, but this. I know, but I really got to do that. Like, no, God, God said he would. Like the God who fulfills promises, like you want to know how he fulfills, fulfills promises? Like look at, look, like read the Old Testament, look at what he said he was going to do, look at the way he's done it. And look at the, the things he said he's going to do and look at the way that he's doing it. And like the, the God who fulfills promises has said, I will care for you, I will provide your needs. Like we need to claim that over our life and let that actually sink in and matter. And then the last thing he says is that like you don't have to be anxious, you don't have to uh, live that kind of life. You can trust me because I love you. Because God loves us, and he knows, verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, but your father knows that you need him. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. But listen to this language, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I want you to hear that. First of all, the language, he says, fear not, little flock. Like he, there, there's, a, there's affection there from our God. We view him so often as sitting up there just, just weightless, kind of looking, waiting for us to mess up, seeing if we're going to be good enough. No, no, he's leaned in like a father, like he loves us. He, he wa- like, think about your kids, like you don't want them to suffer, like you want to provide for them. You want to see them um, have what they need, and that's God's posture toward us. He says, I know you need these things, and, it, and I actually... Makes me glad to give them to you. Like he's glad to give us the kingdom. But for some of you, that just falls on deaf ears because you don't know, you don't trust. And maybe your dad wasn't a dad who um, cared for you in that way. And, and you are skeptical of any father figure. You're, you don't know how to view God. You don't know how to trust God because of the things that have happened to you in your life. And so I don't want you to measure God's affection for you by the things that have gone on in your past. I want you to measure God's affection in you by the cross to measure how much God cares for you by his display of love on the cross. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, God displayed his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He put himself on a cross. And the Bible says that there's no greater love. Nobody loves any, any better than that, any greater than that, than somebody who lays down their life for their friends. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He knew that our greatest need was of salvation, that we were dead and hopeless in our sins, and, and yet he came and gave of himself so that we could have salvation. And if he's willing to give of himself in that way, fully, without regard, not how much can I give? You think about that. Jesus didn't say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to keep this portion of my life, and I'll see if I can just, can I save him with just a percentage, right? Can I just give him this percent? And then maybe, no, Jesus willingly gave all that he was 
and allowed himself to be killed on that cross for our sake. And so if he's willing to give in that way to meet our greatest need, don't you think, like, don't you think that he'll just going to care for you in the details of your life? Like that if you choose to obey him and posture your life in a way that requires faith, don't you think he'll show up? Like if he showed up there on the cross, don't you think he'll pay your bills? Don't you think he'll help you have a place to live and food to eat and clothes to wear? That's the invitation. That's the teaching from Jesus here. So as we respond, I want you to think about three questions. I just want you to, I want to invite us to take an honest look at our lives. I want to ask three questions. The first of which is, if you look at your calendar and your checking account, what do those things say that you value? Not just what you say you, you, you value and how much you love, but if you actually look, you follow your treasure, your time, and your money, what do those things say about what you value with your life? And secondly, where is, where is there anxiety in your life? Where are there pain points where you're just unable to trust God and it pushes you to work more, do more, worry more, whatever it may be? Like, what, what's going on there? I want you to be honest with God in this, in this time. I want you to confess that to him and just let him search your heart. And then lastly, what would it look like if we were to reorient our life around God and then letting the pieces fall to the rest of life instead of Orienting our life around our priorities, our things, the things we're going to do, and then seeing how much we can have left for God. Like, what if we flip that? What if we, what if we took an honest assessment? God, what is life really about? When I come to the end of this world, whether that be tonight, like the man in the story, or whether that be in 50 years, what is life about? What, what am I called to spend my time doing, my energy doing? Okay, Lord, like, what does that look like? How do you want me to posture my life? How can I make you first, make you the big rock that gets put in the jar before any other small rocks? And then we'll see what's left. We'll see what's time for left. How, what does it look like for you to reorient your life around God? To kind of allow him to honestly assess and see where you're out of alignment with what he's called you to, to be and do. What does it look like to repent? For some of you, that may mean any, list, any, any number of things. For some of you, that may mean like you need to go repair a relationship that you let money come in between before, right? Like, like the man in the story, like it's angry with his brother. For some of you, that, that's what repentance looks like. You need to go and say, you know what? I allowed this to become more important than, than you, and I'm sorry. Others, that may mean you need to shift your lifestyle a bit. Maybe you can, you know, maybe you're not able to give any toward God right now. You're not able to let your treasure be with God so that your heart can follow. You need to figure out how do you free up some of that treasure. Like, don't be afraid to put whatever it is on the table before the Lord. Maybe that's, you know, switching uh, vehicles so that your car payment is less. Maybe that's moving to a different, like, I, I don't know what it is. Like, but you, you take your own life before the Lord and lay it there and let him speak into how you should reorient yourself. Maybe you need to drop a sport or a hobby. Maybe your kids need it. Like, I, I don't know. Like, where, what's causing anxiety? What's keeping you from really putting your treasure before the Lord? And you need to ask yourself those honest questions and then let the Lord guide you. I don't want to be the Holy Spirit for you. I don't want to put condemnation on anything. And like, like I said, it's not about the lifestyle. It's not about the, the money we make or how much. It's, it's really about our posture before the Lord. And, 
And really, are we sharing it enough? Are we giving it enough away? Are we, are we building bigger tables? Or are we building taller fences with our lives? We need to let the Lord search our heart and then ask him to give us the courage and the faith to respond. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us with all that you are, giving to us generously with your life. Jesus, we can't stand before you with any hint of entitlement or pretension, Lord. And, and so would you just diffuse all of that today, and may we be convicted, but may we also find you as the good shepherd there, waiting to receive us, waiting to rework our lives alongside of us so that we can experience true joy, so that we can put our treasure, Lord, on a shelf high enough that the enemy can't get to it. Help us with that, Jesus. Help us to respond now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as Tim mentioned earlier, we're going to kind of